Thank you for downloading this podcast from Emmanuel Church Lurgan. At Emmanuel, our vision is to help rewrite the story of Craigavon, Ireland and the nations with the good news of the Kingdom of God. We hope you enjoy listening to this message. Thanks Tash and good afternoon. Uh, thanks also to Claire and the band. We've been singing so many attributes of Jesus this morning. He's our shield, he's our strength, he's our portion, he's our rock. And that's kind of where we're going in the course of this service, to think about who he is in all of his many different parts, not just in one or two parts. If you are visiting with us this summer, we really do hope you feel at home. We're really blessed here in Emmanuel to have two incredible teaching pastors in Phil and Dave, and we thank God uh, for them. But we have to give them a break every now and again. That's how you end up with people like me. Phil has uh, given me just um, a, a short chapter to speak on this morning, only the 71 verses. Uh, so we might get finished by about Tuesday, um, by which time, of course, we will have a new Prime Minister. Um, I'm going to miss Theresa May, not because she's a great conversationalist, not because she's a great negotiator, but for making me smile every time she did this. <laughs> now, whenever you think of her politics... When a person's ability to dance or their inability to dance goes viral and becomes something of a, of a national obsession, you know that they are a person of some influence. Well, Time magazine has just published its list of the most influential people of 2019 to date. And there's a guy called Blevins on the list, Richard Tyler Blevins, some of the younger folk might know him, I certainly didn't. He calls himself Ninja. He's an American Twitch streamer, I still haven't figured out what that is, and a gamer and a YouTuber. He's 22 million followers on YouTube and made $12 million last year. I'm just sorry I don't have enough hair to dye it green to make $12 million. But in the millennium edition of its list, Time magazine put somebody very different on the front cover. And the journalist Reynolds Price wrote this. It would take exotic calculation to deny that the most influential figure, not merely in these two millennia, but in all of human history, has been Jesus of Nazareth. Even the date of this very day is based on the calculation of the date of his birth. It's the 21st of July, 2019 AD, Anno Domini, in the year of the Lord. So it's 2,019 years since the Lord walked on earth. That's some influence when the date of this day is based on the date of his birth. So what makes Jesus of Nazareth so influential? So influential that a Yugoslavian nun would devote her entire life to comfort the dying of Calcutta in his name. So influential that the world's greatest architecture, art, music, poetry has been created in his name. So influential that people of every nation, uh, tribe and language say they have been rescued, forgiven, healed, set free in his name? Well, we find the answer in John's gospel, and that's where we are this summer. 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke are sometimes called the synoptic gospels. Each presents Jesus in roughly the same format, so together they provide a synopsis, a summary of what Jesus said and what Jesus did. John is slightly different in that he shifts our attention to who Jesus is. He he ignores some of the more obvious things like his birth and his baptism and his temptation and his teaching on the parables. And instead, John focuses our attention on seven signs, seven miracles that point us towards who Jesus is. And six of those seven miracles, by the way, are not mentioned in any, any other gospel. Unlike the other gospels, we don't have to guess why this one was written. We know precisely why it was written because John tells us himself. I hope. <laughs> but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Out of all of his memories of doing life with Jesus, John has chosen to share these ones for a very specific reason. So that we will believe Jesus is who he says he is, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing that, we might find eternal life. Now, don't worry, we're not going to go line by line, word for word through 71 verses. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that approach. I'm a big fan of the exegetical sermon uh, because it decreases the risk of us taking words out of context, and we're experts at that in Northern Ireland. Uh, but this summer series is about following Jesus in all of life. And when we take these verses collectively together, they teach us what it means to follow Jesus to a place where we will witness signs and wonders and to a place where we know how to share the message of Jesus in this generation we live in where it can sometimes be a bit hostile. I don't think it's a coincidence that the passage Phil has asked me to speak on this morning really connects with some of the thoughts I shared at the Tubar conference. Uh, those of you who were there will recall that Al asked me how I felt the church in Ireland should posture itself at this time. Well, I'm going to take just a moment to recap what I said that night. Because if I'd studied this chapter before the Tobar conference, I would probably have answered that question by saying the church should posture itself as Jesus does in John chapter 6. The, the, the New York pastor and author Tim Keller says that the church is still coming to terms with the fact that it's no longer holding sway in society, that it's outside the circle now trying to fight its way back in, and therefore it hasn't developed the right language, the right counter-narratives to what the world is saying. Well, far be it from me to disagree with the legend that is Tim Keller, but I do disagree with him. Because I don't think we've got to develop those cultural or those counter narratives. I think they already exist. The cultural narrative is pride. I'm right, you're wrong. So the counter narrative has to be humility. The cultural narrative is uh, division. If you don't agree with me, then you're my enemy. So the counter narrative has to be coexistence alongside people we disagree with. And the cultural narrative is entrenchment. Dig in, don't ask me to change my mind. So the counter-narrative has to be a willingness to engage with other concepts and other possibilities. To put it as simply as possible, on both sides of the Atlantic, society has moved into boxes. We're in the Trump box or we're not. 
We're in the Brexit box or we're not. Uh, we're in the British box or we're not. We're in the Irish box or we're not. We're in the Boris box or we're not. If we learn nothing else in the few minutes we have this morning, I hope we learn this, that Jesus isn't found in any box. He couldn't be more out of the box. Three times in John 6, we find a much more paradoxical Jesus. Firstly, Jesus is both man and God. He isn't man or God. He is both man and God. Read the verses with me for a moment. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. He sat down because he was exhausted. It might not be obvious at first, but when we read these verses in context, we learn so much about the humanity of Jesus. When we last hear of Jesus in chapter 5, he's in Jerusalem. Now he's miles away on the far shore of Galilee. When we last hear of Jesus, he's at a Jewish festival. It has to be uh, the Feast of Tabernacles or Passover. And now these verses tell us that Passover is imminent again. So Jesus has covered an enormous amount of ground. And he has been ministering for at least six months and maybe even a year. He's physically exhausted. And he's emotionally exhausted. Because King Herod has just beheaded John the Baptist. It's hardly surprising that he climbed the mountain with his disciples and sat down, hoping for five minutes' peace, hoping to have some time to process recent events. In John's gospel alone, he sits down at a well because he's thirsty. He sits down on the mountain because he's exhausted. He, he weeps at the grave of his, of his friend Lazarus because he's sad. He talks about being anxious about the cross and troubled humanity. All signs of humanity. But we shouldn't be surprised. Think back to the very first chapter of John. The word became what? Flesh. And made his dwelling among us. God became human. And pitched his tent here on planet earth. You know why that's so important? Whatever trouble. Whatever human trouble. You and I might be dealing with today. He understands it. There's no doubting his humanity, that he's a man, but he won't be confined to that box. You know what happens next? There are 5,000 men to be fed, never mind women and children, an estimated 20 to 25,000 people. Andrew finds a boy with five barley crackers, that's the literal translation, and two sardines. We're about to witness the largest scale miracle in the Bible. The only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels. It has got to be the most understated event in all of history. Two sentences. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. Two sentences. There were miracles of transformation, turning water into wine. There were miracles of restoration, restoring sight and hearing and mobility. But this is a miracle of creation. 
He literally created something out of nothing. No man that I know can do that. Only God can do that. He fed 50 times the number of people who are seated in this room with so little fuss it's recorded in two sentences of the Bible. And what a meal, what a feast. Barley that had never grown in the soil. Fish that had never swum in the sea. Forget about looking for five-star Michelin dining experiences. I bet these people were still talking to their grandchildren decades later about the finest meal they had ever eaten. You know, it would be so easy for us to criticize these people when we think about the fact that they were just following Jesus for the wrong reasons. But let's be honest. If we met a man who could deal with all of our aches and pains, who could turn our water into wine, who could feed us and all our mates with a McDonald's Happy Meal and have enough left over for 12 KFC bargain buckets, we'd want to hang out with them too. So let's not be too critical of them. But unlike most men, he isn't interested in, their, in the popularity. He isn't interested in the fame. When they go to make him king to stage a coup, Jesus disappears. Because he isn't just a man. He's God too. Before we move on to the next section, let me just ask us a question this morning. If we'd been the only person, if you had been the only person, or I'd been the only person in that crowd with a lunch would we have handed over our lunch? I'm, I'm not sure I would. Because we are so much better at giving Jesus our sin than we are at giving Jesus our stuff. If Phil and Dave were to preach a sermon on stewardship every time the Bible referenced the issue, we would hear a sermon on it once a month. What it means to tithe, what it means to give, what it means to give more. Think about this. If that little boy hadn't given over his lunch, the people would never have been fed. There would never have been a miracle. But here's the key part for me. He would never have had an opportunity to participate in the miracle. If we want to see signs and wonders in our generation, we have to be willing to give Jesus our stuff. Um, I've told you this story before, but I am going to tell it again because I think it's really powerful around this issue of stewardship. Martha was a friend of my mother. She's, she's in heaven now. At the beginning of the last century, Martha's mother opened the door of their home in Belfast to find a wee boy standing barefoot in the snow. He, he was selling firewood. So she brought him in, paid him sixpence for some firewood and lit the fire to warm him up. It was only after he'd gone, she realized the scrap of paper she used to light the fire was the envelope containing their rent for the week, two pounds and ten shillings. They were not very rich people. So when Martha came home um, from work, she and her mother prayed about this dilemma they had. Well, that very night, their door knocked again. And this time, it was a woman who had been nursing abroad on mission and was on her way home and needed a bed for the night in Belfast and they put her up for the night. The next morning she said, God has told me to give you an envelope. You'll never guess what was inside. Two pounds, ten shillings and sixpence. Their rent and the sixpence that they had spent helping a little boy who was desperate on their doorstep. Do you want to see heaven touching earth? then give Jesus what you have. Because he is both man and God. 
And then secondly, Jesus is both radical and conservative. Some of us like the radical Jesus, and some of us prefer the conservative Jesus. Jesus is both of those things. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, that tells you how rough it was, they hadn't traveled far, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. He speaks to them, and we'll come back to that bit in a moment, what he has to say. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. And immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. You what now? Yes, the boat was teleported across time and space from one place to another. The other Gospels give us far more detail about this event. Um, Mark, for example, tells us that Jesus made the disciples get into this boat. I've always wondered about that because he must have known they were about to encounter a storm. We need to think about that the next time we're going through a storm of any kind. He obviously was testing their faith just as he had tested Philip's faith at the beginning of this story by asking him how they were going to feed the people when he'd already decided he was going to do a miracle. So I suppose in a way, the walking on the water wasn't one miracle, it was six. Because he walks on the water, then Peter walks on the water, then Peter begins to sink and walks on the water again. And then Jesus calms the storm, stills the sea, and he transports them from one location to another in a nanosecond, in a heartbeat. This is off the charts in terms of miracles. Julie Timlin posts some stunning pictures of Loch Ness, uh, but I've never seen any with a man walking on it. And they were frightened, has got to be up there with the understatements of the millennia. These are radical events, but Jesus won't be confined to that box. Flick back to where I said he spoke to them before they got onto the boat. Verse 20, but he said to them, it is I... Don't be afraid. The literal translation is, don't be afraid, I am. I am. Does that sound familiar? He uses the four letters that make up the Hebrew verb to be. The name Yahweh, the Lord. The only thing radical now is the fact that he's applying that name to himself because the name itself couldn't be more conservative. He might be doing radical things like feeding thousands of people and walking on water, but his theology comes straight from the Old Testament. The I am language of Genesis, Exodus, and Isaiah. You see, Jesus gives us the best of both worlds. He's radical and he's conservative. John has mentioned the Passover at the beginning for a reason, because he wants to ground this in history. Remember when God called Moses, I am who I am, he says. Tell the people, I am has sent you. The Passover, the deliverance of the children of Israel is written all over this passage. Miraculous bread from nowhere, like manna in the wilderness. Salvation from the sea, like the parting of the Red Sea. Twice Jesus retreats to the mountain, not just a mountain, but the mountain. It's a very clear throwback to Moses. 
He's pointing us to one who is greater than Moses, you see. He's pointing us to himself. It's such an echo of his encounter with the woman at the well just just, uh, two chapters earlier Dave talked about last week. Because in that encounter as well, he couldn't be more radical. Talking to a Samaritan, talking to a woman, talking to a woman who had five and a half husbands. But the entire conversation with her is grounded in the Old Testament. The late John Stott used to say that we need more or sees, not Roman Catholics, radical conservatives. People who are prepared to be radical about how we engage with our generation. But people who are conservative about what the message of the Bible actually is. Again, just before we move on to the last part, let me ask a question. Would we have let Jesus on the boat? That sounds like a really daft question, but in verse 21, it's clear that the disciples had to be willing to let him on the boat. Why would anyone think twice about that in the middle of the storm? Well, because there's one thing more life-changing than having a storm outside your boat. And that is having God inside your boat. If we want to see signs and wonders, miracles in our generation too, we must be willing to let God on the boat. He won't force his way in there. Some of us can be reluctant to do that, especially those of us who grew up in uh, conservative evangelical churches in Northern Ireland. We have received solid biblical teaching all our lives, but we dared not tamper with the supernatural things of the Spirit. Speaking in tongues, healing, deliverance. We were afraid to allow Jesus on the boat because someone once perhaps told us that to do that would compromise the truth we'd been taught. Bring Jesus on the boat? Are you joking? We might end up waving a flag in church. (laughs) Graham Galton and I talked about this recently. Some of you know Graham. He's the principal of McGabry Primary School. Um, Graham wasn't feeling very well last year. So we came to the healing rooms one Saturday morning. When Paul McElwain was praying for him, Paul said, Graham, God wants to rescue you from drowning for a third time. That's a very specific word. And it was a lightning bolt moment. You see, when he was a child, Graham was rescued from the water and resuscitated not once, but twice. He he told me the day we had a conversation that he really values the teaching he received growing up. But he knew only God could have given Paul that word, supernaturally. Do do we want to see heaven touching earth? Then we, we need to be prepared to let Jesus on the boat. He is both radical and conservative. And then lastly, Jesus is both satisfying and disturbing. Of course we want the satisfying Jesus, But we've got to be willing to take the disturbing one too. When the people find Jesus on the other side of the lake, they ask, Rabbi, teacher, when did you get here? Notice they don't ask, how did you get here? They're still so caught up in the physical, they miss the spiritual. But they're basically just hoping for another pop-up bakery that he's going to feed them more bread. So he gave them a sermon on bread instead. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never 
be thirsty. Take time when, during this week to read this whole sermon at the end of John chapter 6. And don't, don't skip over the repetition because that's where you find Jesus' sermon points. Repeatedly, Jesus stresses that he has come from heaven. He says it in verses 32, 33, 38, 41, 42, 46, 50, 51, and 58. I think he wants us to get the message. He's come from heaven. So he, he pre-existed. He isn't just man, he's God as well. And then repeatedly, he stresses that God has sent him. I've come down from heaven to do the will of my father. Verses 32, 33, 38, 39, 40, 57. So God has become a man and come down from heaven for a very specific purpose. To give us life eternal life. I am the bread of life, verse 35. Everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, verse 40. Your ancestors ate the manna and died, but if you eat this bread, you will not die. Again and again, verses 51, 54, 56, 58, life, 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 life. Do you feel dead this morning? This passage is jam-packed full of life. And it's not the word bios, physical life. It's the word zio or zio, spiritual life. He's gone from offering one woman at a well, living water to quench her eternal thirst, to offering thousands upon thousands of people living bread to satisfy their eternal hunger. Satisfaction, but he doesn't just satisfy. He disturbs too. When they ask for bread, and remember, they still think he's talking about physical bread. He tells them to come to him, to behold him. So that's not just a glance. It's a sort of lingering in his presence and to really believe in him. He's basically saying, spend some time with me, get to know me, and then put your trust in me. Then towards the end, he drops this bombshell. And remember, he's standing in a Jewish synagogue when he says this. And they are totally disturbed by the language he's about to use. He's, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. These verses have been violated by the church through the ages so let's be really careful he isn't talking about his literal flesh and he isn't talking about his literal blood the bible does not teach transubstantiation the bread and wine at the last supper did not turn into jesus because jesus was standing in the room with them he's teaching them that the only way to have this experience of eternal life is to embrace who he is entirely the God who has come in human flesh and the God who has shed his own blood for our sins. You see, Jesus is so much more than a good person. Jesus is the God who loves us enough to die for us. They couldn't even accept the first part. Isn't this Joseph's son? How can it be God, they ask? They definitely couldn't accept the second part, that their Messiah, the hero of their story, was going to have to die. They were so disturbed, some of them abandoned him. Verse 66, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. They would never witness another miracle. How tragic. If we want to see miracles in our generation, we need to give Jesus our stuff. 
We need to allow Jesus on the boat. And we need to acknowledge Jesus in his entirety, not just the bits that we like. We don't just get to have uh, Jesus, uh, the, the man who is conservative and satisfying. We have to have Jesus, the God, who is radical and disturbing too. There are no half measures with Jesus. It's all or nothing. Billy Graham used to tell this great story about an African, uh, uh, sorry, about an American archbishop who he met at a dinner. He asked the man when he'd become a Christian. And the archbishop explained that he'd gone to Chicago to speak at a theological college and taken a bus tour. And as he had just sat down in the bus, this African-American woman sitting behind tapped him on the shoulder and said, Mr. Has you been born again? He said, Madam, I'm an archbishop. I'm here to give a lecture at a theological college. Well, when the bus came to a stop, the woman stood up to leave and she turned to this proud religious man with his flowing clerical robes and she said, Mr. That ain't what I asked you. I asked, Has you been born again? He smiled at her, but his, her words had pierced his soul. He went back to his hotel room, found a Gideon Bible in the drawer, read the Gospel of John, and surrendered his life to Jesus. If we want to see heaven touching earth, we need to acknowledge him in his entirety. Jesus is both satisfying and disturbing. There is a, there's a critical question for all of us right at the very end of this chapter. The people grumble, they can't accept what he's saying about himself, they're offended, and many of them leave. So Jesus turns to his disciples and asks, you don't want to leave too, do you? In other words, are you just in this for the bread and wine too? Are you just in this for the healing? Are you just in this for the teleporting through the rush hour traffic? That's a question for all of us. What are we in it for? Are we in it for the Jesus who makes us comfortable? Are we in it for the Jesus who takes us way out of our comfort zones? By the end of John's gospel, the disciples will find themselves back on this same beach, back eating bread and fish that Jesus has prepared, back being challenged about the extent of their commitment. Do you love me? Do you really love me? No, I mean... Do you really love me? He asks that question repeatedly because the place of total fulfillment is the place of total surrender. The place of total fulfillment is the place of total surrender. One of the best sermons I ever heard was preached by Fanta Clark, Bishop Ken Clark. He was speaking to a group of students graduating from Bible College in Dublin. They were going to be applying for ministry positions all over the place. So he suggested that every interview for ministry should only consist of one four-word question. Do you love me? Do you love me? Summer is uh, flying by. In six weeks' time, we'll be back at Vision Sunday. Hard to believe, Dave. So August is a really good time to ask ourselves that question. Do we love him? Or are we going to walk away too? Peter answers him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Who else would we go to? Good question, Peter, but it's a rhetorical one because there is no answer. 
That's the whole point of John's gospel. That we might discover who he is. That we might believe in who he is. And that we might find life in who he is. John has just begun to paint this incredible picture of Jesus. We're going to find about find out about it over the next six weeks. It's just the first of seven statements. Jesus goes on to say, I'm the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. Seven powerful statements after seven powerful signs and wonders. Who else could we possibly turn to? To the person who's struggling to find a job or a home or a spouse or a family, looking for satisfaction, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. To the person who's struggling in the darkness of divorce or loneliness or anxiety or depression, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. To the person who's struggling with terminal illness or grief, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. We could go on and on. Whatever our problem is this Sunday, Jesus is the solution. Whatever question the world is asking in the weeks that lie ahead, Jesus is always the answer. I am is the solution. I am is the answer. By the end of Revelation, this same John will have completely shattered any illusion we have about keeping Jesus in a box. John will write that he's the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, from the beginning to the end. John will write that he is the root of David and the bright morning star, from the earth to the sky. John will write that he is the Lion of Judah and the Lamb who was slain, the only one who could pay the price and the only one who could take back the scroll. If you remember nothing else this morning, would you remember this? He cannot be contained. He cannot be controlled. He cannot be confined. That is the Jesus we worship. As the band come back to close, I want to just say that I was so blessed reading something Alan posted on Facebook uh, from California that really deals with this. He said, I have no confidence in Christian fundamentalism on the right or left-wing ideologies. I'm done with conversions on either side of the fence that fail to acknowledge either the lordship of Jesus or the Pentecostal flames of the spirit, which, if it's the real deal, will result in propelling the church into the streets to fulfill the Great Commission. Because he's not an either-or Jesus. He's a both-and Jesus. How should the church posture itself? The church should posture itself as Jesus postured himself, because Jesus is both radical, is both man and God. Jesus is both radical and conservative. Jesus is both satisfying and disturbing. Let's take him out of the boxes. Let's let him loose in the days that lie ahead of us. Is that the Jesus we're following in all of life? Because that is the only Jesus worth following. In the horrible days of African slavery, uh, when uh, people were being transported across the oceans to be sold, they would sing spirituals. We never know who wrote the words and we never know who wrote the music. But one of them goes like this. In the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. When I am alone, give me Jesus. 
when I come to die, give me Jesus. Sometimes we overthink about how we are to engage with the world. But let's just offer them Jesus. Because the Jesus of John's gospel will always be more than enough. Let's, let's pray together. Father, we bow in the presence of the I am, the very present God who is here. And we thank you that you're here. We pray in the house this afternoon that you would forgive us for the many attempts we make to confine you, contain you and control you, to put you in a box. Help us to embrace Jesus in his entirety today. The God who became flesh to shed his own blood for our sin. And Father, would you give us the courage to respond in the only way appropriate to your God who has given us himself. To give ourselves not just little bits of ourselves, but all of us. Would you take us to the place where we surrender everything to Jesus? Maybe for some of us that will be even for the first time. And for those of us who've been on the journey a while, help us to surrender more. Take us to the place where we surrender all. Because you're worth it. And we love you, Lord Jesus. Amen. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. For more information about our church and all that we do, please visit our website at emmanuel-church.co.uk.